0: With a closer look at the news and events affecting Prince George. Welcome to After Nine on 93.1 CFIS FM.
1: Good morning. Welcome to After Nine. I'm Eric Allen, your host for today. Our panel will be James Steidel, Peter Ewart, and. Uh, What's his name? <laughs> <laughs> I can never think of it. Herb I get, yeah, Herb Martin. <laughs> I was supposed to have John Zakowski in today, but he's not here at the moment. So whether he's going to be here or not, I don't know. We'll find out if he walks in. Uh, we're going to start the day off uh, with a lead in by Peter. We're going to be talking about new mines, uh, potential for job creation and uh, <clears throat> devastation, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, kind of as a replacement to uh, some of the forestry jobs
2: that we're losing. So, Peter, if you want to go straight into that. Thanks, Eric. Um, yeah, I, I'm going to just cite a few statistics from the British Columbia Regional Mining Alliance and then, you know, make a few comments of my own, right? But, uh, you know, as, as people know, BC has a long history of exploration and mining that goes back uh, a long, long time. You know, currently, um, as of 2020, well, 2021, There was 326 active exploration projects in the province and uh, 660 million uh, exploration spending. You know, and it's, it's anticipated that this will go up even more ramped up demand as time goes on because of the development of the green technology, other kinds of technology, electric vehicles and so on. So currently, uh, uh, back in 2021, I don't, I'm do not not sh- quite sure what the number is now, but back then it was 17 operating mines in the province. At the same time, 3,700 mining supply companies, you know, that were anyway involved in the, in the mines were involved in the precious base and in industrial metals. And the biggest, uh, um, you know, source of revenue in terms of uh, uh, mining in the province is steel-making coal, which is... Uh, 49%, you know, and you, you get the steel-making coal out of Tumbler Ridge and Southeast B.C., BC the, the Kootenays, and so on. You know, the second biggest is copper at about 29%, then gold at 12%, and in, uh, industrial min, minerals at 3.4%, and then even molybdenum, where Canada's uh, only producer is in British Columbia. It varies, it's a small amount, right? Less than 1%. Rare-earth mines are under development. Rare-earths are um, used for computers, flat screens, electric cars, but also weaponry, weaponry, missiles, etc. And um, th- there's w- one mine that's g- that started up in uh, the Northwest Territories, and north of here there's a Wichita mine, northeast of PG, you know, that is in development. So in 2020, BC's mining industry generated... Almost ten billion dollars in gross revenue contributed to 382 million to government revenues, and directly employed about uh, 11,700 people. On on one ranking system, uh, B.C. is ranked as the world's least ris- risky jurisdiction. That happened in 2017 and 2018. However. And critics argue that the Canadian government collected a smaller percentage of mineral value from the mining companies than almost any jurisdiction in the world. Furthermore, governments provide infrastructure with public funds, you know, such as high-voltage transmission lines, upgraded highways, hydroelectric energy facilities, uh, you know, giving low energy rates, and upgraded ocean port infrastructure. Also, government provides a number of direct funding arrangements, subsidies and tax credits to mining companies. So it appears to be a good deal for the mining companies. But is it a good deal for the Indigenous and non-Indigenous communities? Historically, there's been a lot of Indigenous opposition to mining, with good reason, you know, because there was no consent uh, obtained, no benefit, environmental devastation and so on. Uh, but as a result of you know, opposition and lobbying and so on over a long period of time, uh, BC was Canada's first prov- province to share mineral tax revenue with First Nations. Um, you know, the Niska Treaty 2000, the Talton Prosperity Agreement. But, but at the same time, there's many other Indigenous na- na- nations in the province, and there's still a lot of work to be done. And then, of course, there's the problem of non-Indigenous communities. Not being able to share in mineral tax revenues, uh, in, it, in addition, for some mines, you know the, they're operated on the fly-in, fly-out arrange, fly-out uh, arrangement, which um, you know cr- creates a situation where there's a lack of community solidarity, and social connections, and is also very hard on adjacent communities because they they lose out in any revenue that, that could be could have been spent if. Uh, Uh, you know, facilities were developed there. Um, Now, mining companies extract natural resources and at the same time remove revenue of the resources from the region. But minerals and metals can only be mined once and then the mining company is gone. It's not renewable. There's a problem if some of this revenue is is not used to build the communities demands are increasing and in fact demands are increasing for more community control of revenue while mining is going on another issue is reclamation you know there's there are some regulatory requirements but uh there's a number of critics say that it's not enough and to, then the tailing tailing pond problems you know like there's something like 170 tailing ponds in bc and of course we remember what happened with the mount Polly uh tailing pond disaster which uh you know, the tailing pond broke open and um, invaded uh, the Cornell Lake. So this is not to be against all mining. You know, the, the issue of mining, it just needs to be done in a more responsible way that is beneficial to all the adjacent communities and to the main mine workers and that uses modern technology that's more easy on the environment and if, as, as well as following effective regulation. In my, in my opinion, every mine should be Im- embedded in a plan for community and regional development. Um, we, we've seen how not to develop the forest resource. You know, we see the mess that forestry is in right now. We need to learn so that there's no b- big mistakes like that were made, uh, such as in forestry, in explo- exploiting the mining resource. Anyway, those are just a few comments I wanted to make. Good. Thanks, Peter. <coughs> so... We've got about seven new
1: mines. They're talking about uh, want to open up in BC in the next five ten years. I guess one of those is the one down uh, south of uh, Vanderhoof. It's going to create a number of jobs, and uh, I think for the First Nations, uh, I've read somewhere that there's probably two hundred million dollars that they'll get out of that particular project. So. Uh, and I would assume that the same would have apply to any other other six mines that are gonna open up in the next number of years. But the history of the life span of a mine is usually somewhere fifteen, twenty years and then it shuts down another one opens up. So whether you actually end up with a net gain, depending on the timing, is you know, like we have Grand Isles gone and uh Naranda mines is gone and there's a number of other ones gone or going. I mean there was comes up around Mackenzie, but then we had the new one that came in Mount Milligan. So you know, are we gaining any any jobs, or are we just starting new mines and closing down old ones? I don't know if they've done that. And, uh, normally they don't do stats, especially from the uh, the PR guys, stats that are negative. They just like to put the positive stuff out there. So, you any comments on that, James?
3: Yeah, I think I think uh, on these kind of resource development. Projects. I think you got to take a step back and ask, you know, what's the purpose of all this? And, and ultimately, it has to be uh, about building a good, sustainable community with good jobs for our community members. And, you know, a, a lot of times back in the day when they would develop one of these big mines, you'd kind of build a town next to the mine, right? And, you'd, and that mine would support that community. And I think we talked about this last week about... Um, you know, there's, there's kind of a pattern of where you did develop these towns around mines. Those towns were like well built and they're kind of built with with the long term in mind. And we don't do that anymore, right? We, we develop these mines out, out in the middle of nowhere and uh, we fly workers in, we fly them out, uh, same with Kemes and, and a bunch of other mines. And, and they're not really part of, they're not really part of a community, right? It's kind of like just a short term expansion, uh, extraction plan. And, you know, is it? Is it really a great place uh, to, to, for a worker to, to work? You know, like, uh, you know, I think of the sawmills around town. You could go and and do your eight hours on, on the green chain, and then you go back to your family and, and your friends and, and hang out and, you know, maybe go to the bar and whatnot. And now you got to go, you do your, your 12-hour shift, and then you go to your ATCO trailer. And, you know, it's not a great time working out in these camps. It's, it's like, and you're out there for, you know, a couple weeks at a time. Or a week at a time, um, you know that that's that's a cost. These are these are costs that we need to factor in uh, on workers, on on our mental health, on on the communities, on you know our our, our friendships and and all that stuff. So I don't know. I, th- I think yeah it's i'm i'm happy to hear we've got these jobs um to replace to you know some of the mills that we're we're losing and whatnot but at the end of the day i think i think the goal should be kind of local manufacturing more value-added stuff uh more agriculture uh more jobs that are kind of connected in with communities and and prioritize quality of life that's my two cents
1: yeah we're pretty limited on the number of uh jobs that are actually created, you know, once, once the construction jobs are over.
3: Well, I, I mean, mean, it's it's great for the big, uh, you know, they're, they're spending hundreds of millions of dollars on dump trucks. Yeah. I mean, where are
1: those dump trucks made? Probably Korea? Decatur, Illinois, or Korea, yeah. Certainly not Prince George. No. <laughs> <laughs> we do have a few dump trucks, but they're used for a different purpose. <laughs> <laughs> Herb.
4: Yeah, I, I, I think the biggest. Uh, I mean, there, there's no doubt there's a, there's a boom coming um, with electrification of uh, transportation. There's going to be all sorts of demand for copper and and uh, rare earth minerals uh, for for batteries. There's going to be demand for lithium. So there's there's huge potential ahead for BC, but we've got to learn from our mistakes, our previous mistakes, um, such as Mount Polley and and other. Uh, mines that have never been cleaned up. So there, as of 2016 there was a 500 million dollar bill uh, for cleaning up uh, abandoned wait, uh, mine sites uh, that the taxpayers were going to have to assume. Uh, Mount Pauly was the, the cost was assumed again by the taxpayer. So you know I, I think the important thing here is to not jump at the jobs but just to really look at the overall project and make sure that uh, the taxpayer doesn't wind up footing the bill uh, down the down the line. So I, th- I think that's uh, that's the first first thing that we've got to keep in mind. But um, but s- saying all that, I mean, I think uh, Canada does have uh, some of the highest um, environmental standards in the world. Uh, there was. Uh, A a, a German uh, documentary that uh, looked into copper mining in Chile and um, they were the the reports were kind of horrified by what they found Uh, you know there were people uh, uh, cancer rates were five times normal because of uh, extreme levels of um, arsenic and um, uh, water was being diverted from communities Uh, no compensation to any of the local uh, indigenous communities so I think you know we can sort of Pat ourselves on the back a little bit. Um, the, the the same documentary went into uh, copper mining around Sudbury, where 50 years ago uh, astronauts were being trained for moon uh, landings uh, in that in that area because it was so uh, devastated by the pollution. Uh, 50 years later, there's there's been a major effort at uh, at greening up the sites, and um, uh, really, it's a night and day kind of scenario. So I, you know I think. I think we we can we can be confident that um, we have the environmental uh, regulations uh, in place to uh, do it safely. But um, yeah, we can't uh, can't be hornswoggled by uh, big promises of investment to um, uh, to overlook uh, you know the basic financial uh, safeguards that we have to have in place to make sure that these mines are wound down safely and uh, and don't you know, provide a huge environmental risk?
1: Well, I don't know uh, who's actually going to be doing that, even with the mines that are around today. I guess somewhere out there, there's some government people looking to see, you know, what's been left behind and what's been done about it. But I know in Grand Isle there someplace, uh, some of those holes they dug, the water that's running into it, I heard it was going to take 60 years before it's full of water, just from (laughs) rainwater and... uh, just a huge, huge, huge hole. I mean, they go down round and around and around, and then they just leave it and it fills up. I mean, what else are you going to do? <laughs> All the dirt you took out, you ship somewhere else. So. And uh, there's other, there's some pretty nasty looking sites in uh, northern British Columbia and, and uh, Yukon, Northwest Territories. I mean, I don't know. Uh, it's historically... Uh, Companies are pretty smart at what they do, and governments are pretty slow to react to what they're doing. So, I don't see a big change there. Because these seven new mines they're talking about right now, the uh, primary push is to expedite the process for allowing these mines to go forward. Sometimes it takes five, six, seven years to get all the permitting. They want it in months. You know, no more of this five, six, seven years delays, delays, delays. Because the argument is, if you delay, it's going to go somewhere else, you're going to lose it. So the pressure's already on to, you know, put them through as fast as possible and get them up and running. The other side of that is that that these—that's the sooner they get finished, they leave. So, I don't know. <laughs> uh, go ahead, James.
3: Yeah, I just had a, a comment on on the cleanup. Uh, if, I don't know if anybody out there has been to Butte, Montana, but, uh, they you know, it's one of the most heavily polluted uh, towns in America and they've got this giant mine right in the middle of the town and it was basically uh, they wrote it off as as this uh, toxic waste pit that they would never be able to clean up. It had this cyanide laced uh, water pooling in the bottom of this mine and uh, they couldn't figure out how to uh, uh, clean it up and, and ducks would land in this thing and they'd die. The ducks would die pretty much right away and they had a bunch of scientists on the case and uh, they one day they go down there and they see this pink uh, slime mold growing in this water and uh they they fish a sample out right and they're like oh my god this stuff is uh purifying the water or you know potentially and they're like where the heck did this come from and they do a bunch of research and they finally figure out this slime came from the gut of a duck uh, anyway little interesting story of how uh nature can fix itself and uh uh, how, you know, nature, nature has the seeds of its own renewal a lot of times, but uh, not to say that we rely on that to clean up these mine sites. But anyway, interesting story, and I think Alan's saying break time over there.
1: Okay, <laughs> we're going to go for a break and uh, come back and kick us around for a little bit longer.
0: Community Radio CFIS FM needs your support. While our station is run predominantly by volunteers, money is always needed to keep the monthly bills paid as well as for the production of new local programming. Memberships, donations, corporate sponsorships, and advertisers all help to keep your local independent broadcaster functioning. For more information on how you can contribute to this vital part of the Prince George Media Mix, visit our website at cfisfm.ca or give us a call at 250-563-2347.
5: Learn to love your smile again at Der Denture Center. Der Denture Center offers a full range of denture services from partial dentures to complete dentures. Same-day repairs are also available. Der Denture Center is located on the third floor of the Victoria Medical Building with easy elevator access. Come in for a free complimentary consultation No referral required. For help with your existing set or if you need new, Der Denture Centre in the Victoria Medical Building. Call 250-562-6638. Eat healthy and fresh at Homesteader Meats, founded by
1: Ben and Rossella Clausen in 1982. Homesteader Meats has two premium quality meat and gluten-free products, plus Wednesday is Senior's Day at Homesteader Meats. Seniors 55 and over save 10% off regular prices. Single portions are available on most items, including pierogies and sausages, and are half-pound packages off ground beef, ground pork, stew meat, and meat pies.
6: Everything from Merlattin to patties is at Homesteader Meats in two locations, College Heights and Park Hill Centre. Forecast from Environment Canada, mainly Sunday today, Winds from the south at 20 and a high of 8. Tonight, a few clouds, a south wind is becoming light this evening, a low of minus 5. For Tuesday, a mix of sun and cloud, a 60% chance of showers and the risk of a thunderstorm late in the afternoon, wind becoming south 20 in the afternoon, a high of 10. This is After
0: 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM.
1: Okay, we're back. Uh, and of course, we would like to see these mines uh, actually be built and create the jobs and, and find a safe way of doing it, or a safer way of doing it. But right now, it's kind of smash and grab and run. Uh, it's kind of the, around the world, that's the way it is, and so that has to change. But I agree that, you know, the permitting time takes way too long. You know, whether it's just government, normal government reaction to situations or like trying to get some permits at City Hall or something, I don't know. But uh, uh, the other one I want to just touch on was the copper. You mentioned it earlier, Peter, that uh, there's a lot of uh, pollution associated with copper mining, too, that we don't talk about. Much because we've been doing it for probably a hundred more years in British Columbia, but uh, and we do, and we mine a lot of copper, but there is uh, the associated um, pollution attached to that. Did you read up something on that?
2: Oh, yeah. Well, you, you know, like you look at the, uh, the, you know, the big tailing ponds, right? You know, like, for example, when you go to Logan Lake there and you drive along the highway, you can look down and see that huge tailing pond there. And then there's the, uh, you know, the, the um, mining operations in uh, in the Princeton area there where you have uh, tailing ponds that are, uh, hugely uh, hundreds of meters high, high right and uh, so that you know that's a that's a whole issue in itself like the, the the issue is though like you know what some people are arguing is that we have a lot of the new technology that can deal better with uh, you know the dealing with these uh, you know mine tailings and other kinds of problems right the question of of it being utilized so that that's a big uh, A big issue there that there has to be pressure, you know, because uh, otherwise the tendency is to yeah smash and grab, come in and uh, dig a hole in the ground and uh, and then take off, right? Uh, You know, and so uh, we need to make sure that the most advanced technology is being used to for reclamation purposes. And the second thing that is really important, in my opinion, is there there has to mines have to be embedded in community and regional plans you know, like in terms of um, economic development, getting revenue from these mines while they're active and putting that into uh, economic development so that after the mine leaves, uh, there's something there in in place. Uh, there's a community there in place. That's, that's a really fundamental issue that I think uh, uh, has to be addressed.
1: Yeah, you could actually make a case that these mines, uh, you know, seven, eight, ten new mines, everybody thinks there's more jobs created. So that's sort of a, an inadvertent uh, diversionary tactic where we think we're doing pretty good and we're not creating any long-term jobs in the cities and towns in the area, especially Prince George. What's the last time we had a really long-term uh, uh, company established here and come up with 50, 75, 100 jobs or something? It doesn't come to mind right away, I'll tell you. I don't even know if anybody's even thinking about it. Well, James is, he's doing a little work in his backyard there, <laughs> <laughs> other than that, but that's better than nothing James, don't get me wrong so that's kind of what we're uh, up against here it's this, this got to be more than just single sort of uh, economic running around the province and making it look good, go ahead
3: Um, I just wanted to relay a little story there can I on my left? Go ahead, go ahead, you guys ever heard of Pan Phillips? He was a, uh, a rancher down on the Blackwater River, and there's a really good book out there. Sorry, this is off topic, but but what the heck? We got we got to give the listeners out there some funny stories here once in a while. And there's a book called The Legend of Pan Phillips. Great book. And what Pan Phillips would do? He'd, he'd get these. Uh, you know, if there was a kid that came and worked on his ranch, uh, he'd say, uh, "Listen, we got some uh, we got some gold in this here field, uh, and you need to do some uh, test holes." And so he'd get the kid to uh, Dig a hole, you know, three feet deep, and uh, see if there's any color down there. You'd say, and the kid would would dig this hole, and he'd say, okay, no color. Okay, go uh, 12, 12 more feet there and dig another hole. And this kid's doing this all day, right? He's 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 having a great old time thinking he's digging for gold. And by the end of the day, he's like, okay, put the fence posts in. <laughs> maybe that, that seems like uh, it seems like maybe that's the economic model that, uh, that we've got here in BC.
1: Well, oh, it could be. I, I remember one where there was two kids, and they looked in this. They took them into this barn, and it was full of uh, horse manure, and uh, they just put them in there, and they came back in a couple hours, and the one kid who was kind of uh, negative was sitting in a corner, and he was crying. He didn't like to smell. He didn't like to be there, and he couldn't see the other guy. Where, where's that other kid? And there's holes all over the place. Finally, he pops up and says, what the hell are you doing? He said, well, all this manure here!" He says, "Got to be a pony somewhere." <laughs> 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 Different between a an optimist and a pessimist. <laughs> so, I just wanted to touch on this Murray River mine that was shelled in uh, Tumbler Ridge a number of years ago, and it was uh, <clears throat> long. It was going to be a long wall mining or long wall mining project. Where, it, if you get a chance to look up long wall mining on the internet uh, look at YouTube you'll see how this thing works it's just totally unbelievable and it's so dirty and and uh, uh, in there when they do this type of mining that most people in Canada don't want to even go in there and uh, that's one of the reasons why they bring over Chinese workers to do it because they do that all the time in China I don't know what the health ramifications of that are but so then, so you end up having a foreign company with building a mine, bringing bringing in foreign workers, and exporting the the uh, projects that they're mining, and the miners go back to China. So somewhere in there, somehow, we're supposed to be getting some benefit from that, other than the royalties at the mine site. I don't know what we get, <laughs>
2: if we're not getting the jobs. Peter. Oh uh, yeah, I think that that's an example there of why. Temporary foreign workers should be given full rights, you know, because uh, otherwise they're at a disadvantage. Like uh, I've toured a whole number of uh, underground mine sites like in Nova Scotia, as well as in uh, Appalachia, in the, in the U.S., in uh, uh, different states there. But, um, you know, the, that issue there that uh, like unless you have full rights, you're vulnerable and uh, underground work is, is tough, tough work. And, uh, you know, the, uh, the issue of, of making sure that people have f- fundamental rights, no matter what, you know, so that they can't be uh, exploited or whatever is a critical one.
1: Okay, we're going to go to break now.
6: The Prince George Potter's Guild is hosting a surface decorating with slips and underglazes with Karen Heathman. In this three-hour class, you will learn how to decorate with slips, transferring patterns, slip trailing, painting, carving, and building layers. Cost is $65 with registration available on the Potter's Guild webpage under Programs at Studio2880.com. Surface Decorating with Slips and Underglazes, June 18th from 1 to 4 at the Prince George Potter's Guild. Sponsored by the Canadian Home Builders, the 2023 Northern BC Home and Garden Show is this weekend at Exhibition Park. Ask the Expert, the Rona Crappy Patio Contest, an afternoon tea and paint with the makery, Sunday pancake breakfast, a garden luncheon, and more, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Plan your days at the show. Grab your advance tickets for just $5 through Thursday online at chbahomeshow.ca. The 2023 Northern BC Home and Garden Show, this
5: weekend at Exhibition Park. Learn to love your smile again at Der Denture Center. Der Denture Center offers a full range of denture services, from partial dentures to complete dentures. Same-day repairs are also available. Der Denture Center is located on the third floor of the Victoria Medical Building with easy elevator access. Come in for a free complimentary consultation. No referral required. For help with your existing set or if you need new, Der Denture Center in the Victoria Medical Building, call 250-562-6638.
4: Are you a leader who wants to take their leadership to the next level? Do you have an emerging leader on your team who needs support? At Pivot Leader, our Leaders in Business program combines leadership training with one-on-one coaching to help leaders just like you. You'll learn how to deal with people better, handle conflict, hire and keep staff, delegate more effectively, read financial statements, and learn coaching skills to move your team along. There's a less stressful way to improve your outcomes. We can show you how. If you'd like to be a better leader, reach out to us today at pivotleader.com. Pivot Leader. will help you grow train and sell your business
0: you're listening to after nine on prince george's community station 93.1 cfis fm
1: okay we're back and we're gonna swing over now and talk about the the uh new daycare center school district 57 in city of prince george leaves brand new daycare center empty since january that was in uh recent article in, uh, I don't even know where I got it from now. In any event, uh, we're going to get into that with uh, Herb, and also into uh, feeding school kids uh, in British Columbia. So you want to take away on that? Yeah,
4: as far as the daycare, the article really didn't get it into too much detail, and uh, sort of finger-pointing between the school district and and the city, so... um, uh, I, you know, as long as people know about it and uh, can put pressure on both uh, institutions, I think that would be a good thing. Uh, it seems crazy to have spent the money and have it sit empty, uh, with uh, with all the demand for daycare spaces in this town. So um, yeah, if you uh, if you are looking for daycare spaces for your kids, put some pressure on the school district, put the, 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 the uh, and some and some pressure on the city council and. S- Hopefully something comes up out of that pretty soon. Uh, I was doing a little research um, in, uh, in light of that uh, uh, Fraser Institute um, uh, list of schools uh, uh, in BC and where I, Ron Brent, I think, uh, came in last. And um, uh, it turns out that um, uh, uh, Canada is actually one of the only or is the only G7 country that doesn't have a national... Lunch program for students. So there's there's a whole bunch of different programs, and in BC there's sort of a hodgepodge of uh, volunteer efforts. But this is um, uh, this is something maybe you know we should be aware of that uh, we seem to be way you know way behind other countries, uh, all 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 developed countries actually, in getting um, uh, free. meals for, for kids um, at, at school. And, um, you know, I, I can think of uh, a number of um, bad effects that come out of this. Uh, you know, uh, you look at uh, 20% overall of, of all kids don't graduate high school. Uh, up to 60% of First Nations kids don't graduate high school. Uh, you look at the number of McDonald's we have in town. That's we're we're amongst the highest in the world, at uh, one for every nine thousand residents. Uh, I think there's there's a huge opportunity here for uh, governments, provincial and federal, to come together here and um, uh, provide a, a, a better uh, experience at school for, for children, both in in development, uh, physical development. Uh, you know, kids are growing and need good food and um, and and also cultural development I mean if if we what are we doing we're creating a society where everyone goes and needs fast food all the time that's not very promising and uh, it doesn't look like a really good outlook for us so I think uh, you know having uh, wholesome meals in school for kids will you know teach them that uh, the value of good nutrition and uh, the importance of eating well uh, yeah that, that was sort of my take on it anyway
1: well, you know, it's, you never just know where some of these things will take you. Sometime, if you're if you're feeding mm. the kids every day, you know, or at least if you're supplying the food, you're not far away from actually feeding them. And at some point, you no point even taking them out of the cradle. You know, when do they start to look after themselves, and when do the parents take the responsibility for looking after their kids? But aside from that, there's some stats on uh, on uh, like it's not free the United States has a food program, one of the better food programs, I guess. But there's three different categories. There's a low-income category, which is free. There's the next category, which is a nominal fee. And then there's another category where you pay for the whole meal. That puts a whole different light on it. In fact, is You could get to the point where you might even say that the government and these guys are coming up with these... um, Feed Kids projects to buy the food from the food producers and have a, a guaranteed market every year for where that food's going to go.
4: Well, under, under COVID, actually, the uh, all the uh, uh, school meals were free uh, in the in the states. They actually stopped that last fall, but uh, nine states uh, kept it as free because they'd seen uh, under, that pro- under the free program the benefits to children. So, and there's another 20 that are uh, 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 doing stopgap measures to try and uh, uh, use it, basically subsidize all meals um, so that it's very, very little, uh, very just a nominal cost. So, there's, you know, the, 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 the free program was a bit of a uh, maybe a, a trial program during COVID, but it, it achieved a lot of really good things, and uh, the majority of states are trying to uh, maintain that. So I think when when the when the U.S., who is our our direct neighbor and you know competitor in, in a lot of uh, a, a lot of business uh, uh, ventures, you know the, basically we should you know we've got to be keeping up with them. And if if they're seeing the light and they're seeing uh, the benefit of uh, of, uh, of of good good and free meals or highly subsidized meals to the children, then maybe we should uh, you know take notice and uh, and emulate them at the very least.
1: I think this U.S. program was brought in by Nixon or somebody further back than that. Certainly nothing new in the United States. Uh, 114,600 spaces at 4,700 facilities receiving child care funding. Provincial funding in uh, B.C. is 406 million. Federals, 51 million in total. 457 million for child care. So... I don't know. I mean, I don't have a problem with it. We have facilities, and we do feed people in certain schools for various reasons. But this is a, the old broad brush sort of progress. So we've got, out of 1,000 kids, we've got 200 that maybe need meals. So we'll, we'll bring in food for 1,000 and feed everybody. Half of them don't even buy the meals in the U.S. that are there. They bring their own lunches. So, so it has to be looked at in the full context of what it is that we're trying to do here. And usually, if like in BC, we're trying to pretend that uh, we're looking after everything when we're not, we're going to go to breakdown.
5: Studio 2880 is hosting a mega art sale on Saturday, April 29th, from noon to three. In support of the David Douglas Botanical Garden Society's Phase Two expansion at UNBC, this huge collection of artwork features unique botanicals, abstract, 3D, inkworks, and more in original and print form. The afternoon will also feature art cards, a silent art auction, and plant seeds for sale. A mega art sale in support of the David Douglas Botanical Garden Society, Saturday, April 29th from noon to 3 at Studio 2880. The Hart Pioneer Center is open for lunch, dine-in, or take out. Takeout orders must be ordered 24 hours in advance,
3: while those wishing to dine in are also asked to call a day ahead. Call the center to RSVP or order at 250 962 before 9 and 1. Cost is just $10 and includes soup or salad. The monthly menu schedule is available
5: through the center. The Heart Pioneer Center, open for lunch Monday through Friday, closed on holidays. If you don't know a pawn from a pickle or a gambit from a gazebo, the downtown branch of your Prince George Public Library is the place to be Wednesday, April 26th, from 5.30 to 7. Learn the basics of the game and hone your skills as your library presents Intro to Chess. It's a free all-ages drop-in event, so whether your aim is to become a grandmaster or just be able to push the pieces around in a game with friends, check out Intro to Chess, Wednesday, April 26th, from 5.30 to 7, at your Prince George Public
6: Library. Forecast from Environment Canada, mainly sunny today, wind from the south at 20 and a high of 8. Tonight, a few clouds. A south winds becoming light this evening, a low of minus 5. For Tuesday, a mix of sun and cloud, a 60% chance of showers and the risk of a thunderstorm late in the afternoon. Wind becoming south 20 in the afternoon, a high of 10. Keeping
0: you up to date on current news and events in and around Prince George, this is After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM.
1: Okay, we're back, and we'll just finish off this food program for kids in school. In the U.S., there they have uh, what they call a food and nutrition services, but they have three categories. At or below 130% of the federal poverty line, people receive a free lunch. Between 130 and 185% of the federal poverty line can receive a reduced-price lunch. And above one eighty five percent of the federal poverty line can receive a low cost, full price lunch. And if you don't wanna go for the second or third option, you just bring your own lunch. I don't even think the only the average uh, hour spent in school is about five hours or something. A lot of schools in Europe are not you're not even allowed to leave the schoolyard to go somewhere else to eat. This idea that we the whole world walks over to McDonald's at lunchtime and has eat some uh, food is not true mm-hmm. you're not allowed to leave the, the lunch or the schoolyard during lunch break most countries here we just go I guess because they're close or what I don't know we'd have them in the schools if we could so we have that now in action this uh, deal with the child care centers uh, part of that problem is not being open is because the, the BC government is changing the model of uh, daycare centers and at some point, they're going to be probably government-run or certainly government-supervised. So, And I think maybe this one at uh, College Heights there is caught right in the middle of the change and somebody's not going to do anything until they got all their duckies in order. You want to say something, James?
3: Well, uh, not on this topic. I just wanted to, to just, uh, just go back to that school lunch thing, but it's not a not a big deal, so I, I can take a pass uh, on that one.
4: I'd just like to... <coughs> one more thing, too, I mean... You know we, we you know we see big social divisions in uh, in, in Prince George you know right? between, between uh, First Nations communities and and uh, and and others and, and you know one thing that uh, you know history has, has shown us if you know if kids sit down with each other over a meal that's a good way to socialize and a, a good way to uh, create some sort of social cohesion which uh, I think we could use and I think that's one one more reason to, to start thinking about uh, uh, you know, free lunches for all the kids in school.
3: Yeah, I just wanted to, to chime in there. In, in Germany, at the universities, they got what they call uh, Mensas, which are big, um, kind of subsidized uh, <coughs> cafeterias. And every every university ha- has it. Not not every high school, but it's a little bit different in in Germany because they're actually the high school only goes till like one o'clock in the afternoon, and then that's when school ends. And then you go home and you have your your lunch after after the university but uh, at the or after the the high school but at the universities you know they've got these big uh, cafeterias and and it was like <clears throat> you know a, a huge part of school you know you'd go there and and uh, everybody would go to this this thing for lunch and and sit down and eat together and you know it was a great it was a great thing so I'd like to see that uh, in more schools i think and incorporate it with maybe growing food and learning how to cook food more and And, you know, you could really make it into a good experience.
1: Well, we're operating... It sounds like we're operating on the assumption that parents don't know what to do or how to feed their kids or how to make a lunch or whatever. I don't believe that for a New York minute. There's some people that may have some difficulties. Most people know how to cook and how to look after themselves. And we don't need grandpa and grandma socialists there to be spoon-feeding them, you know. (laughs) We know how to feed ourselves. So that's my take on that at the moment. So we'll shoot over to... uh, James's favorite subject, which would be cyclists, start petition for better bike lanes in Prince George. I oh yeah. Oh, I
3: think we got to get Alan in on this call, but I, because I could, I think Alan's got a thing or two to say about uh, about those those dang cyclists out there on the road, biking side by side on the on the road, and you know they're riding on the sidewalk and and this and that. Um, you know, and I think a lot of a lot of people get really passionate about this about this topic, and they really. There's a big hate on for cyclists. Let's put it that way. And I, and I, you know, partially, I I don't know, I kind of, underst- not really, I don't understand it. But I can see where it comes from. But to, to the anger at cyclists, I would say, uh, give cycling a try. Try riding around on the streets on a bike. Okay, it's not, not the funnest experience. Uh, you've got uh, trucks whizzing right by you you know giving you six inches of clearance to your to your handlebar it's it's terrifying um i I biked for when i lived in vancouver that's all i i did to get around was ride a bike Uh, so i've got a lot of experience i wasn't one of those sidewalk cyclists alan well you (coughs) um i was i was definitely a road warrior i was i was out on the street and and actually i wouldn't use bike lanes either i was kind of i was one of those guys would get right into the traffic lane and and uh you know take up the whole lane because you don't want to get doored either right that's another thing is if you're if you're trying to ride along the road and and hug the uh side of the uh the lane you know you're gonna get hit with the door when somebody opens up a door and people can get killed doing that so i I was never afraid to take up the lane but i'd ride pretty quick and you know i'd if if there was room i'd get over and let people pass but you gotta you gotta own the road a little bit and um but at the same time it's not a fun experience so i'm 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 happy that uh, the NDP there, they just passed uh, legislation, they changed uh, the Motor Vehicle Act to actually specify. I don't have it in front of me, but I think you got to give cyclists a meter now. Uh, whereas before the language was uh, you have to pass at a safe distance, and there's was no uh, definition of what safe distance was. So now you got to give cyclists a meter, I think, when you go by them. Uh, so that that's a positive a positive move and I, and I like this uh, petition that, that we got reported in the citizen I think uh, we do need better uh, cycling infrastructure in this town
1: well I don't totally disagree with it but I, <clears throat> the last time they got $500,000 for cyclists in Prince George they turned around and painted a bunch of cyclist lanes and I've been watching ever since and I've still only seen 8 or 10 people on a bicycle around this town at any given moment mm-hmm. I think they think there's 500 cyclists or something now, if we want to disrupt the whole traffic pattern in Prince George for 500 cyclists, we can get at it. But I think, it, you know, my suggestion was to go along with what they do in Edmonton, where they have a bylaw that allows bicyclists to drive on the sidewalks. Like, we know, outside of the, the really the bowl area, nobody uses our sidewalks. Very, very rare. Some people walk up to the university. Uh, other parts of town, there's nobody walking that. And not only that, when they allowed them to go on the sidewalks, they also gave the pedestrians or the pedestrians a right-of-way. And uh, you know, the bicycles to go by them had to signal they were going by and that. But we could do a combination of both. Some areas, if you give a, a meter, or three meters to it, do you say three meters or one meter? I think it's one meter. One meter to, uh, on some of our roads, that puts you in the oncoming lane pretty quickly. You know, Do you create other... Uh, safety hazards like you take uh, a when you couldn't park in front of the school anymore to pick up your kids because bicyclists so I watched for two years to see one I only see two in two years I think actually bicycles using it but nobody can park there so now it sits empty you go to the parks where you used to be able to park there it sits empty because there's no cars there and there's nobody in the park you know but there's bicycle lanes but there's no bicycles so this is big city stuff and we're a small city We're going to go for a break now.
3: The Valley Youth Fiddlers will be touring B.C. for the first time in six years with their production of Tanglewood. The tour begins on May 5th in Smithers and passes through Prince George on May 12th. Tickets available at valleyyouthfiddlers.com under the Tanglewood section. Be on hand to enjoy this beautiful tale featuring music written by renowned Canadian composers. The Valley Youth Fiddlers, Tanglewood, May 12th
1: at the Prince George Playhouse. Tickets available through valleyyouthfillers.com. The Prince George Cantata Singers are presenting their spring concert Saturday, May 13th, at St. Michael's Church. Take in this uplifting evening of music celebrating creatures that fly. The choir will be under the direction of Ariana Crossland and accompanied by Maureen Nelson. The evening will also feature guest musicians Shoshana Godber, Kathleen Peters, Allison Bell, and Noel Jago. Tickets are available from choir members and online at pgcantatasingers.ca. That's the Prince George Cantata
6: Singers Spring Concert, Saturday, May 13th at St. Michael's Church. Get your forks ready for the upcoming BC Gourmet Arts Festival. Delight your taste buds by exploring gourmet foods, take part in fun cook-off events, and vote for your top taste favorites. Vendor registrations are still being accepted. Volunteer positions are also still available. Full details are available online at bcgourmet.ca. Featuring culinary and visual arts, food events, live music and more. The BC Gourmet Arts Festival, June 9th, 10th and 11th at the Kin Centres in Exhibition Park.
5: Advocate's Walk for Life is an in-person, family-friendly outdoor event which gives walkers and runners the opportunity to participate in peer-to-peer fundraising. Invite your friends and family to sponsor your walk and tell them about Advocate's life-saving work. Registration and full details are available at walkforlife.ca where you can also create a fundraising page to share with family and friends. This year's Advocate Walk for Life is set for Saturday, May 27th from 1230 to 4 in Tene Memorial Park. It's after nine on Prince George's Community Station,
0: ninety-three point one CFIS FM.
1: Okay, we're back. And this bike issue, of course, there's all sorts of uh, safety issues. No matter what you do, you know, bikes and cars. I mean, you can make the argument that, you know, they talk about number of people injured by bikes, well, almost about the number of people injured by driving cars on the same street, A thousand times more. I just it's everything we do. In the driving category, is dangerous. But uh, when they moved them off of Osbika, the people that went to pick up their kids then went into the residential areas and parked to pick up their kids, and they're backing in and backing out, and, and they're all over the place in these residential areas. So that just created another problem. It didn't solve anything. In the meantime, the front of the school where they normally go empty. You know, so I think uh, I don't disagree with having a better uh, bike system in Prince George. But maybe we should be looking at expendi- extending the sidewalk by a meter or a meter and a half and put them on the sidewalks. James.
3: Yeah, I, I think, uh, I don't know if bike lanes are necessarily the answer, but maybe like a bike a bike culture or, or teaching drivers how to deal with, with cyclists on the road a little bit more. Like when, one thing I always noticed when I'd, when I'd bike around Vancouver is, you know, somebody would roar by you and then you'd, you'd catch up to them with the lights. Okay, so a lot of times, you know, you don't need to roar past a cyclist if you're driving around town. Like, uh, just go the same speed. You'll find that, uh, you know, you're going to hit that red light, and you're going to get to the same point at the same at the same time. Uh, you know, cycling, you probably get around town quicker. To be honest, I, I would find. Uh, and the other thing, you know, you hear. I just want to address the argument that well, these cyclists aren't paying road taxes. And they're not. They're not licensing their uh, bicycles. Well, well, the reason. Uh, they don't pay road taxes, is because the burden that they put on the roads is minimal. And at the end of the day, like even with all your gas taxes, uh, we still have to subsidize city roads out of property taxes. So we're not even charging uh, drivers enough, really, to use the roads and all the maintenance and whatnot. So, you know, if you want to talk about subsidizing road users, we've got to talk about su- how we subsidize drivers uh, right now. So I think that's, you know, these are important uh, arguments or, or re- realities to recognize when we When we debate uh, cycling, I mean, it's a really, people get really passionate about this topic and and we like to, you know, we like to think that these uh, cyclists are a bunch of freeloaders and they're not paying their fair share. And, you know, at the end of the day, if we have more people riding bikes, uh, you've got uh, less healthcare costs, you've got a healthier population, you've got, um, you know, less pollution, you've got less wear and tear on your roads, and you have more road space for other users, for the people that do need to drive around. So I think there's, you know, there's some good reasons for encouraging cycling
1: well I don't know I for me it was uh, we were kids we cycled all the time to a certain age and after that an 80 or 90% of us put the bike in the garage and never biked anymore I think it's like a lot of things more attention paid to it than it warrants it's kind of like dogs people have dogs they can do anything they want they want parks to walk the dogs I could get into more details of the stargazers that are looking at the sky when the dog's doing this thing and they're they're entitled and uh,
4: uh, you know. the, the, there's a lot of gray hairs picking up electric bikes at Costco I noticed so yeah. I think you're going to find there's uh, there's there's a lot more demand uh, for some sort of cycling uh, infrastructure uh, in, in a lot, lot of big cities they found that actually uh, it, it pays to dedicate re- some residential uh, streets for bicycles basically put in a lot of um, uh, traffic bumps uh, and to slow down traffic and uh, Make it uh, generally for for bicycles and have a dedicated route for the bicycles so that they don't have to share with with cycle with uh, with cars. and I think that uh, might be the best uh, route forward. I mean, uh, Prince George does have some some good areas for cycling. Uh, Otway is is good. Uh, there's not a lot of traffic on it, but there's no shoulders. so these are these are things that uh, the city has to start thinking about and um, uh, and instituting as we go forward.
1: Well one thing for a licensing uh, uh, and the reason for it is then you know how many people had bikes and you'd have a, you know to the last time they just had a, a phone in or write in or something how many people going ride, to ride to work this week. I think they came up with 500 or 700 people. But these are people taking their bike out of the garage for the first time in a year just to ride that week to be way at people to be seen to be then they go back to the old 350 bikers of Prince Church, So but if we're going to do it, we need to know what we're doing it for. Are we doing it for a 1,000 bikers, 2,000 bikers, 500? And what it is we want to do and where do we want to do it? And and all of that, we should do that first instead of going out and building all this stuff. And we don't know how many people are going to actually well, use it.
3: Well, the, re- the reality is biking is, is hard work, okay? It's it's not the first choice, I think. you know, If people could drive could their uh, drive, I think that that's what people are going to do. I think biking... Uh, you've got to create as minimal barriers to riding your bike as possible and requiring people to wear helmets to, that, that don't help, okay? There, there's no evidence that uh, helmets save people. Um, and I'll debate uh, that with people till, till all day long. Um, and there's, you know, requiring licensing is just going gonna, gonna to clamp down on cyclists. There's going to be less cyclists. So, no, you got to make it as easy and, uh, you know, seamless as possible. That's what we have to do.
1: For the cyclists, but yeah. if we, but if we took away the licensing and that for cars for that,
3: well, no, the cars can oh, yeah. cars can kill people. So yeah, they should be licensed. I mean, bikes don't kill people.
1: Mm, yeah, you know, some mm. they do.
3: Very, very seldom.
1: <laughs> anyway, here.
4: it's just sort of a field of dreams scenario. If you build it, they will come. And and I think there's there's a big demand out there for electric bikes. Uh, a lot of seniors are getting on them. Uh, let's create some infrastructure. It doesn't have to be super expensive. Doesn't have to. If you if you dedicate some residential streets as you know as a route downtown or something um, for cyclists, uh, probably the people on those on those streets would actually uh, appreciate it because it would decrease the traffic on their streets and um, it would provide a safe uh, place for cyclists. So I, I think that's a, a reasonable uh, alternative.
3: Oh, Peter. There's, there's division on the panel, guys. <laughs>
4: <laughs>
3: yeah, yeah, yeah. Well,
2: no, this isn't my area of expertise, that's for sure. But, you know, like, uh, I'm all for um, uh, what Eric was talking about. They're having a plan, right, and, uh, you know, analyzing the concrete conditions here, you know, because they are different than some other cities like Vancouver. Vancouver, of course, they have a, a system of... Uh, electric uh, bike system rental bike system right where they these electric bikes are are parked you know in different locations in the city and so people just you know if if they're part of that program they just uh you know click in and take off on the bike and then park it wherever the you know wherever they land right um but i i don't know i don't think prince george would be at that stage at this point in time but uh, i do believe looking at the analyzing the concrete conditions here and figure out what's best what's safest okay
1: we're going to wrap it up for today I want to thank everybody that listened to the program and for my uh, panel for coming in and giving us some good feedback on these different subjects and we'll be back next Friday for uh, another go around thank you
0: After 9 is a weekday presentation of CFISFM. After 9 is produced by Alan Wishart Eric Allen Kylie Lewis-Holt, Trudy Clausen, and Rez Krebs. Executive producer is Reg Fair, with technical assistance from Stephen Smith. Theme music is by The Ebbs. For a rebroadcast of today's program, check out the podcast link at cfisfm.ca. To provide feedback or suggestions for the show, please email cfisfm at yahoo.ca.
3: You're listening to CFIS-FM
5: Prince George, a not-for-profit community radio station broadcasting with 500 watts of power at 93.1 on the FM dial. CFISFM is owned
3: and operated by the Prince George Community Radio Society.